Hello and welcome to Explorify Canada podcast. Join us as we sit with other Canadians at the roundtable to discuss and sometimes argue about financial independence in Canada. All right, welcome everybody to Explorify Canada. Uh, you're listening to Ryan. I'm from Kitchener and joining me as always is Chrissy. Say hi, Chrissy. Hi, it's Chrissy from Vancouver. And fiddling with his toolbox is the Money Mechanic. Say hello. Hey, Ryan and Chrissy. Uh, nice to be here. I'm from Victoria, BC. All right. And I have the opportunity today to introduce Canada's very own FI power couple, uh, hated by baby boomers everywhere, except for JL Collins. (laughs) (laughs) These two individuals made FI possible right here in high cost of living Toronto. Staring financial death right in the face, they rejected the cult of home ownership and began the millennial revolution. They're also the authors of their brand new book, Quit Like a Millionaire. Christy and Bryce, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm super pumped to have you guys on the show. I just listened to the Audible version of it, and I was so, so pleased, Christy, to hear that you were the one uh, narrating it. And I was pretty taken aback of the amount of uh, raw emotion that was uh, delivered in the lines, but you kind of held it together while you're reading it. And I wanted <laughs> to know, like, what was that like? Oh, all credit goes to my producer. Uh, so what what happened was that we actually did the recording in the studio in London. Um, this is actually Strathmore Publishing. And this this place actually has a lot of history as basically everywhere in London. Uh, and they like when we walked in, we saw like a lot of signatures from like super famous people. And they said that uh, Sir Ian McKellen. Yep. Uh, who plays his... Um... Like Gandalf. His, yeah, he recorded yeah. his thing there. So we, she was, <laughs> yeah, she was yeah. I was giddy. I was sitting in a seat. I was like, I am in Gandalf's butt print. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm never going to wash my butt again. So that that was amazing, awesome experience. Yeah, they're real pros. I mean, like, yeah, they, they're those, really those good. guys were awesome. Yeah. Um, so like you basically have a sound engineer and um, a producer on the other side of the glass and they're giving you cues as you read it. So every single line that I read in the book, I basically read at least twice. So it took about four days to do that recording. Wow. And she was really good on, on picking up cues. Like sometimes like what you're hearing, <laughs> that's definitely not the first time I'm reading any of those lines. So she, you know, if I read the line and I'm running out of energy, she'll actually stop me and be like, no, you know what? You sound terrible. <laughs> let's get you a drink of water. Let's take a 15 minute break and let's come back and like perk up that energy like this is no good right so it's i i owe a lot to her um so she's actually uh i think she's like award like grammy award-winning producer ali and she was giving me so much amazing feedback so yeah definitely props props to the team that i worked with at uh strathmore publishing because there's no way i could have read it to that level if it wasn't for her giving me the right uh cues cool just out of my own curiosity did they offer you the the audiobook or did you have to sort of ask to be the one who narrates? Well, yeah, so it's a, it's a process from Penguin. Um, they decide which books would actually, like when it's getting released, which ones are going to have audiobooks released at the same time. Um, so I think they went through some committee and then decided that, yeah, they wanted to release the audiobook at the same time. Well, so. yeah, and, and they also like like talked to us on the phone and then they saw some of the videos that we had done and they so you kind of have to kind of earn your place to read your own book because not everyone reads yeah. their own book. They A lot of times they hire voices because some people just don't have good, they don't have good voices for radio it's too scratchy or this too nasally or and just an unpleasant reading experience so but for but for this one uh it really didn't make a lot of sense before to have say like samuel l jackson talking about growing up in rural china <laughs> although that would be pretty awesome <laughs> but then but then when i said that i was like that would be awesome just being like i am tired of these motherfucking commies up in my motherfucking business <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then i was like and i was like that's oh, the only that person be- i would ever want to read my book so so, so our, dem- our demands are if you can't get samuel l jackson we should yeah, read it we and read. then they were like okay we can't get samuel so you're gonna read he's, it. he's busy yeah <laughs> 
it worked out well. I, I thought it was an awesome book and I, I really enjoyed it. I'm not just saying this. I think it's one of the best fire books out there at the moment. It, it was very well written. I I love how you wove your story in with, you know, the math and the facts. It was it was really well done. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. Oh, I'm cheering up now. That's awesome. <laughs> really, it was enjoyable. And, and it's a bonus that you're Canadian. We love that. Woohoo, Canadian five. Yes. yes. Everyone in everyone in America thinks we just sit we just sit around in igloos and say a boot a lot. Yeah, it's like never... they, they're like, you say sorry a lot. I'm like, I do not say that. Like, <laughs> like, she don't doesn't. Say that. We, she doesn't. Canadians do, but she doesn't. <laughs> I can absolutely see that. <laughs> yeah, I had a chance to listen to uh, a lot of the book as well, and I really like how you wrap up the book. I won't do I won't drop any spoilers here, but you do a fantastic job uh, sort of tying everything together and really motivating everybody else to that this is achievable for everybody. I thought you did a great job there. Oh, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was especially important to me as someone with kids that you addressed that issue of how do you do it with kids? And you've addressed it beautifully. I mean, I wish that world schooling is something I've known about for a long time. And I love that you really went in depth with that because it it is an option for some people. And it's amazing if you can do it. Oh, yeah, that community is, is very fascinating. Because um, since we've met them in 2016, we met one of the uh, one of the people in the community. And then we, now we've been introduced to their leaders and the um, world schooling kids who have actually gone through the system. And now they're in, in university. And it's just fascinating to talk to talk to that uh, community, because they actually have a lot in common with the fire community. Like a lot of them have rejected home ownership, and they get a lot of flack for that. So imagine the flack that we get as millennials for rejecting home ownership times 10 or 100 because for them for them it's like guilt tripping them as parents right because other parents will be like oh, how dare you do this and you're, you're, you're ruining your, your kids, kids yeah. and they're they're not getting they're not getting stability and they're not going to be socially competent and all this right and then mm -hmm. we talk to the their kids and they're some of the most um precocious, like precocious yeah. entrepreneurial kids we've ever met um there's one girl i was talking to hannah um actually she's she's canadian too so it's really right, cool maybe yeah. you guys would want to invite her on the show and she was saying how um so she started her own virtual assistant online business and she was able to earn money towards her tuition when she went back to queen's university to study geography and every time we talk to one of these world schooling kids they just know so much it's like a 30 year old trapped in a, an 18 year old's body. I'm just like, how do you know all this? Like, it's, it's ridiculous. Like the amount of different languages they speak, um, world knowledge, knowledge about politics, just everything. I think it's it's because they kind of reject the same way that fire, um, the movement, they reject that status quo of like, you have to follow this structure. This is how learning is supposed to work. You have a teacher who's drilling it into you. You have to follow this curriculum and you can't learn at your own pace. You can't teach yourself subjects that you want to learn. So they actually have the freedom to learn whatever it is that they want to learn. And some of them have gone to Vietnam to learn about the Vietnam War instead of learning it from a book. And, you know, they know it in depth and they talk to people who have been in the war. It's just that, that next level of knowledge that you wouldn't be able to get in a classroom. So I'm very fascinated by the world schoolers. And, and how socially adjusted they are. I mean, like people kind of think that, oh, they're, they're going to be weirdos, but it's like, they like they form relationships with other people in the community just fine a lot of them become like lifelong friends in that thing they don't know what bullying is like they just have never dealt mm. with bullying or cliques because like if you don't have to like like bullying happens because you get don't get along with a kid but you have to hang out with them because you go to the same school like mm. with world schooling that doesn't really like if you don't like someone you just don't invite them to come with you like next time like so it's like 
without the bandwidth of worrying about all these like social issues that come with growing up in like a regular school, they seem to have like matured a lot faster. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's something I wouldn't have considered the bullying angle. It's that's interesting. They they also don't know what uh, school shooting like. They they've never been through a lockdown for school shooting because like school shootings don't make sense when you're a world schooler. No, of course. I mean, even where we live, there's very little chance of a school shooting ever happening. But my sk- my kids still have to go through these drills to practice right. what would happen mm-hmm. a lockdown drill, yeah. and it's scary. it's scary that our kids have to be uh, dealing with this stuff, even if it's not going to affect them most likely. Right. Yep, exactly. Sure. Yeah. I think we really underestimate the power of, of traveling and you guys are experts on it now since you've been doing it for the last, is it four years now? Four years. Uh, four, four or five. Yeah. And I've traveled a lot as well. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't born in Canada, so I grew up a little bit overseas and the power of travel for children is amazing to see mm. other people and, and to realize that most of the world, people are all the same. We all oh, yeah. kind of have the same basic needs, right? So yeah, yeah. the travel for kids, they get, they understand a little bit more about finance right off the bat because you're, you're exchanging in another currency in another land. And there's just so much more to learn. Yeah. yeah. I think if we end up having kids, we would want them to be bilingual or trilingual. Like we would want to try to live in different places so that they would pick up the local language and not just the language, but the culture. There's something about learning language when you're immersed in it, in that culture, because culture is such a big part of language, right? That you can't just learn in a classroom or just from Rosetta Stone or one of those apps. You don't really get the Mm -hmm. benefit of it. Like when we went to Mexico and like was part of the culture and talked to people, you get to absorb that a lot more or going to Taiwan and like, you know, for them to learn Mandarin and all these things that I, I think is a huge benefit benefit um, as a result of traveling. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I I speak Spanish very poorly, but I got along just fine working in South America. So yeah, yeah. I can relate to what you mean. You have to be immersed in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, in speaking to these world school children, um, I, I know there are some people who have been on Fire Podcasts who mentioned they grew up with the military lifestyle where their parents mm. moved them around constantly. And you know, some of these kids thrived on that. They loved the adventure, but a lot of them also say they or their siblings didn't take to it. So are there world school children who are the same where some love it and some crave that stability where they're staying in one place or close yeah. to family? I'm sure there are, yeah. So it's like, just like people in general, kids all have different personalities, right? And we have talked to other world schoolers in which they do have to settle down after a while. Maybe the kid wants to go to school or maybe it doesn't quite suit them. So then they would have to kind of, you know, do a slower version of it in which they stay in more like an expat living type of thing where, you know, they stay in the country for a while and then go back home and then like live in another country rather than move around. So uh, I think one of the benefits of when you combine world schooling with financial independence is that financial independence gives you choices, right? So traveling is a choice. If you no longer feel like the traveling lifestyle is for you, you can move back home and then you can decide where you want to live. And not Another thing about the beauty of financial independence is that you're not tied to a big city because of your job, right? Because now you can work online, you can, you know, sit on a beach all day if you don't want to, if you want to spend all all day uh, your time with your children or your time with family, you can do that too, right? So I think it's really about choices. There could be, it could be that the world schooling lifestyle doesn't work for you. And then it's perfectly fine to move back and settle down in any place that you choose. Makes sense to me. Where are you moving back to in Canada? Oh, um, well, right now we're in- if we were to move back, or because <laughs> we haven't actually moved anywhere right now, we're yeah. kind of like 
up in the air. Just throwing it out there. If you had to choose a place in Canada, I mean, Ooh, obviously you've got family in Ontario, but yeah, no, a trick question, right? <laughs> I actually really like. I really enjoy Kitchener. I honestly do. Like, yeah, that's, the, the that's Kitchener, where we Waterloo went. To, Waterloo is where we went to university. So yeah. I have, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I have fond memories. Christy, less so, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bad experience. Now looking back, it's funny, but at the time it was pretty stressful. Um, but Waterloo <laughs> has this combination of like, there's a tech hub that has an entrepreneurial vibe to it. It's not. We too, have friends there. We yeah. have friends. Mm-hmm. We still have friends there because of you know school. Um, so that's a so that's an option. I like Montreal a lot too. Montreal, yeah, yeah but we'd have to use we have to use I our have, high school French, so there. that's going to be difficult. Yeah, I know. That's all I remember so bad. Yeah, the, everybody in Montreal speaks English just as much as they speak. French. Yeah, no, we would definitely want to learn French if we moved to Montreal. For sure. Yeah, 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 but yeah, that's that's up there. Uh, what so, else? So if I, think- I told if I told you our co-host Ryan, he lives on around 20000 per year for his family of three in wow. Kitchener. Wow. W- would that be entice you to move back to Canada? Or I is- am so impressed. <laughs> However, First of all, amazing. That's amazing. Uh, we yeah. need to talk and I need to look at your spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I got them. <laughs> That's amazing. But one wow. Thing, one thing we are we would have to struggle with is snow. Yes, uh, I know. We're giant wimps now. Like, giant wimps. I, we, we, we Can't went, deal with snow. We, when we ch- uh, chose to do this traveling lifestyle, it was explicitly for the reason of, I never want to see another goddamn snowflake ever again. <laughs> oh. am, no more shoveling snow. I am so over snow. <laughs> like It's like when we're in Thailand, we they find out we're in Canada, like, oh, I'd like to come one day. I want to see the snow. And it is, it is not nearly as fun as you think it is. It's fun for the first day or two. And then we have to shovel through that crap to get to work or get to the grocery store. It, it loses its luster very very quickly. That's why we live on the West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> we Are you going to go that no. best coast thing? <laughs> yeah, there's only one person on this podcast that deals with snow. <laughs> me. Um, so I think it'd be a good time then to um, bring you back to your days in Toronto. Uh, you guys built your FI portfolio while working in Toronto. And I'd love to just dig into that a little bit more to meet the Christy and Bryce before uh, FI and maybe you guys could talk about where you lived, um, particularly in Toronto and what you right. spent your money on. Sure. Okay. So when we were living in Toronto, we spent most of our time living in renting the top of a townhouse in uh, Greek town. So in, it's in East York. And the strategic decision to pick that area instead of, you know, smack dab in the middle of downtown with all the fancy condos is that even though it just took us maybe 25 to 30 minutes by subway to get to work, the prices were a lot better in East East York. And not just with the housing, but with grocery stores, with going out to eat, everything was a lot less expensive because you're not competing with all the, you know, everybody downtown, downtown trying to go to like the fancy wine bars or whatever it is that everybody does downtown. Um, So, and another thing that worked out really well for us is because we took good care of the landlord's property. Like whenever there was something wrong with, let's say like the sink needs fixing or something, we would just like look it up online. We would just fix it for him. Um, there was times in which he forgot to collect his rent check. And we actually literally like, hey, you forgot to take your check. Take your money. Here, we're handing it to you. And then so we got along really well to the point where when we left, he was actually asking us, do you have any references? Do you have any friends that you can refer? Because we'll give them a massive discount just because you guys referred them, right? So I think it makes a big difference to strategically pick places that's a little bit further out, not, not too far that you're commuting every day, but far enough that you're not competing with the crowd and if you have a really good relationship with your landlord, that makes a big difference because, you know, they, they will they will help you out and they will um, appreciate 
the fact that you're their tenant. And just a general kind of like renting instead of owning thing. Like people in Toronto are crazy about housing. Oh, yeah. They've been crazy about housing for a long time now. And the attitude has always been in Toronto, buy now or buy or be priced out of the market forever. It's like a very, it's a very, like they're very desperate to, to own property. And as a result of that, people get taken advantage of. There was this um, house that we would walk by every day in East York that it looked like it was just condemned. It was like the, the, the owner clearly had some kind of mental issues. They, uh, <laughs> there were no seriously because he would, he would put up signs saying like ranting about UFOs and the government oh. trying, the government trying to spy on him and kill him. The Trudeau <laughs> government spying on him and trying to kill him. Anyway, yeah, just those, <laughs> never trust, never trust a liberal. Anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, so terrifying. So yes. terrifying. Yeah, you might like selfie in front of your face or whatever. <laughs> anyway, one day we walked past and there was like a for sale sign up, and we were laughing. We we're like, "Who's the idiot that's going to buy this house?" It's like a week later, bam, sold. Uh, Four hundred thousand. Like almost five hundred thousand dollars. They it was a developer. They moved in, did a really half-assed like renovation where they just redid the paint and like put some really crappy floorboards up, and then just basically hid all the problems with the house. Turned around and sold it. Bam, eight hundred thousand dollars. Like, yeah, that was scary. Like, whoever bought that house is like in in deep financial trouble for the rest of their life. And then when I realized that, I was like, oh, this entire industry is a Ponzi scheme. Like it just mm-hmm. everyone is trying to screw everybody else. Everybody who's owning property in, in Toronto is just getting screwed. And at that point, we, were, we, we kind of just got disgusted with the entire housing market in mm-hmm. Toronto. And we just said, you know what, I'm not going to play. Yeah. And it's actually quite hard to do that, right? Because everybody around you is buying into the fear of missing out, the FOMO. And they're like, if you don't buy now, you're never going to be able to get into the market. You better do that, right? And you get sucked into that. And um, even when we retired, like our friends and family did not believe that that was happening, right? My mom's like, oh, you're a millionaire. You don't have a house. So what? And then our friends are like, well, have fun on your gap year. (laughs) Like, we'll see you in a year when you come back to work and crawling back and all that stuff, right? But then... Um, second year we came back, they're like, wait, you're still traveling? Well, that's because there's a bull market. You got lucky, right? And then third year we come back and they're like, hmm, that's interesting. You still haven't run out of money? Wait, you have more money than when you left? And then the fourth year we came back, they're like, can you look at our retirement accounts? Can you look at our finances? <laughs> so the key to, to financial independence and spreading it is not by preaching, but by living an awesome life and just lead by example. Because that's the only way that you get other people on board because they see you are really happy. They get very suspicious that you're very, very obnoxiously happy. And then they're like, what is going on? Like, tell me why you're so happy all the time. I'm so stressed. Right. And then then you don't have an agenda. It's not about, oh, yeah, get on. Like, we're not a cult as much as we seem like a cult. We're not trying to get them on the bandwagon by saying, like, come to this, you know, like, we'll we'll do like all these weird sacrifices or whatever. Yeah, come to no, the, the brotherhood. We, yeah. yeah, exactly. We we just want you to be happy and we're happy. If you want to be happy too, feel free to come along. But if you're fine, kudos, like, you know, happy for you. That's great. But they're not fine. If you ever know, if you ever talk to somebody who's very, first of all, if they own a home, they love to talk about their home, right? And <laughs> and um, they love to like try, kind of project how much money they have and how well their housing investment is doing. Mm-hmm. But then when you kind of scratch the surface a little bit and you kind of ask them about how the rest of their you know like life is like, you realize that they're deeply, deeply stressed. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. they have so much mortgage debt. Like pe- these guys who talk about, oh, I'm gonna, I, I own like two or three different houses, and I rent one out, and I Airbnb out the other, and I'm and, and I'm so smart and all this kind of stuff. You. You catch them like you then catch them like in the corner at, during a party having an argument with their tenant. 
and, and they're just kind of like, <laughs> they're just kind of like, God damn it. Like this guy just won't pay up or like he's damaging everything. And they're like so stressed. And I was like, how, so how's the, how's the real estate stuff going, man? And he's like, I, I can't talk right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we don't care what people say. We care what they do. So like look at what the, whether the person is happy and healthy and you'll be able to see whether they're happy with their investments. So you, you have a lot of influence in the world uh, on people and you know their decision whether to rent or buy. How has your influence been on your own social circle and your That's family really and awesome. friends? Not at all. Yeah. The, the, no. <laughs> here's, here's the strange thing, and uh, we notice this when we talk to other uh, you know bloggers and this kind of stuff. We um, like people write into us now. You know they've been reading our blog for a few years. They bought the book and they, they kind of they, they they read it and they love it and all that. And they they write into us and being like, you know, you changed my life, right? Like being like, I uh, before this entire time, I would just all the money was coming in and it's just going out. I've never had more than a thousand dollars in my pocket, but now I read your I read your blog. I did the workshop. I've learned how to invest, and I and I'm putting my money into the same stuff that you're putting into because we give all this information out for free on our blog. And they're like, and now I have like two hundred thousand dollars, and yeah, I and I never thought crazy. that this would ever happen. Yeah. So we have this ability to change strangers' lives. But in terms of our immediate friends and family, they're still just kind of, well, they're just, they're, they're still. You know what? There's a caveat to that because I think it's a timing issue and it's also a blog versus book thing. Like we've had friends that, you know, they don't, it doesn't really affect them or family members. It, they don't really do anything. It's usually the older generation. Um, but there are friends that have never, ever read a finance book before, not been interested in finances at all. Like your sister, for example. Yeah. And now she's reading our book. She's like, this is really good. And I'm like, oh my God, we just got your sister to pick up a finance book. And we've had <laughs> friends that, that, you know, they knew about the blog for the last four years. They knew about what we did. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden our book gets announced. They're like, wait, you have a book out? Wait, this thing is real? Okay, tell me more about this financial independence thing. All of a sudden, so, it, when you go from blog to book, all of a sudden it becomes like credibility has gone up a thousand and then they actually want to talk to you about it. And and, and you, you mentioned kind of like weaving our story throughout the entire audiobook and this kind of stuff. We wrote it with the... Exp- like almost the explicit person of like, if I can get my sister mm-hmm. to read through this thing yeah. and stay interested and actually learn something, we've done then job. we've done our job. Yeah. So it's we, for people who don't read finance books. We literally wrote this thing for people who hate finance books. It sounds like the wealthy barber, that kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah. exactly. it's a novel it's rather than yeah. it's a storyline beginning, middle end rather than, you know, here's another dry ass spreadsheet to check out. And, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Oh, and it's a real story too, which is extra engaging. Yeah, yeah. So you get to know you get to know the character. You know, we follow one character along, which is Christy, because it's like then you get to know the character. And it's it's David Chilton's book was a it was a fictional finance narrative book, right? It was like it was like it wasn't real, right? Yeah, he has he has a really interesting like he I, I read like the behind the scenes of his book and it's quite interesting because initially initially he wrote it from the perspective of someone talking to somebody at a bar and then he had to rewrite the entire thing like the book took him twenty four months to write because he had to like rewrite multiple parts of it and just kind of throw it out and start over and then of, he started to write it from the barber's perspective because he thought that that would be more surprising. Well, no, it wasn't that. It was it was his, when he when he did it at a bar. His characters just kept getting drunk and falling over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was actually. He said better, the bartender. Yeah. He said, there's no way these incoherent drunks could possibly be asking the right question. It's just not a believable plot. So he's just like, oh, I just, I wrote myself into a corner with that one. <laughs> Good call. Good call on making that change. So it's Monday morning. You guys are pre-FI and you're heading to the subway for work. 
Do you stop at Tim's? Do you get yourself a booster juice? Like, how do you control your spending when you know you're saving so much? But you were also, you mentioned in the book that you were quite spendy. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to draw a parallel between the people living in Toronto now and the way you guys lived back then. And if there are any um, actionable tips or just very obvious, like hit you in the face, everyday living savings that are available only in Toronto. Oh, that's a great question. Funnily enough, the TDC strike actually helped get me richer, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Um, so one of the things that happened during the summer was I think like TDC was on strike and we weren't expecting it. Some people were scrambling, trying to get taxis. Other people were trying to get to drive to work. I didn't really have a choice except to walk to work because I was like, I'm not going to pay for a taxi. Like, that's ridiculous. I'm just going to get up earlier and walk to work. Um, at first, it, it seemed re- insane because I'm like, I'm going to walk over an hour to work. Like, this is too much walking. I can't walk for an hour there and back every day. Uh, and then sometimes I'm like, maybe, maybe I'll run there and then like run to the gym and change before I go to work. But then I made myself do it because I didn't have any other options. Like, even if I try to get a taxi, everybody else was trying to get a taxi. So you're all just fighting. It's just madness. Um, so I just ran to work. I, I walked to work. And over the span of the strike, I realized it was actually not that hard. And I was starting to lose weight because I was starting to get fit. And on top of that, I was like, huh, I'm getting more fit. Maybe I don't need my gym membership anymore. Maybe I can look at my diet too. Because at the time I was eating out a lot at lunch just to save time and because everybody else was doing it. Then I looked into the paleo diet and that's when I discovered um, Mark's Daily Apple, which is like this paleo site that gives you a lot of free recipes where you can make your own food. And then I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, maybe I can save money by not eating out as often because now I'm healthier by walking to work and I'm eating out. So then that dropped our grocery bill significantly because before we were eating out pretty often, not really tracking it that often. And then as a result of us going, me going on the paleo diet, I couldn't actually go out to eat that much because nothing was paleo. You go to a restaurant, everything has carbs in it. Um, So I had to control my own food intake. I had to use the special recipes uh, in order to stay on that diet. And I think that was that year I lost easily 15 pounds just from making those changes. While at the same time, we cut TTC and our gym membership out of our budget because we didn't need it anymore. Uh, and uh, it's, so it's these kinds of things and that we try to get people to figure out because people kind of, there's this misconception that personal finance is all, is all about deprivation. It's about, you know, cutting out the, the ice cap or cutting out the coffee every, or the Starbucks every day. That stuff doesn't actually matter. If there are three expenses that, that make up the bulk of your finances, which is rent or living expenses, your uh, transportation and your food. If you get those three right, so this is a good example that, almost accidentally hit all three of those things. We lived, you know, within jogging distance of work. We started jogging to work. uh, So we didn't need a TTC pass anymore. And then we started eating healthier by going on this paleo thing as as a result, staying in and cooking in more. And when you drop those three expenses, the ice cap and the Tim Tim Hortons thing, they don't matter, right? So so even back then we would just be like, ah, I just get a coffee or whatever. Like that didn't matter because the big expenses big expenses didn't matter. Also, I love the Canadian references you're making here. Yeah, I know. So do you got to grab a Tim <laughs> or a Mr. Juice? I'm like, hey, this is awesome. I love this podcast. Because when, <laughs> when we're traveling, like we don't see, we don't see those Canadian brands yeah. anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, so we're in like, in like Germany or we're in like Thailand for like months at a time. And then one time we had to like call back into like a Canadian show. And then when you're waiting, when you're waiting to go on, you can hear the show and you can hear the ads that are going on. <laughs> and then I was so happy because I was hearing Canadian advertisements for Canadian yeah. company again. Yeah. And I had missed and I didn't realize how much I missed that. Yeah. It was like fabric land, fabric land. And I was like, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the cr- 
crown crown jewel of the Canadian fire community, you guys. <laughs> so Aww. we got to celebrate the Canadianness. We, we, exactly. we took we took an awesome selfie in front of a Tim Hortons in uh, uh, was it Madrid, Spain the other I day. Had no that idea. was really cool. I was I like, have, oh, they have Tim Hortons in Madrid, Spain. Where is this coming from? And like, I, I ran inside. I don't and know why at the menu. that's there. We just ran. Yeah, that was it. really interesting. I was, and then somebody told us that they have it in uh, Dubai as well. Like they have Tim's. All over the world i was really surprised that was really cool that's, that's amazing it clearly clicked for you at that point when you started lining up all you know all your housing transportation and food choices so where does the fire community start playing into your life i i listened to your whole book but i can't remember if you mentioned exactly when you discovered the community yeah so that was uh in 2012 i think at that point we had gotten really fed up with the housing prices in the housing market i think our first discovery of the fire community was through Mr. Money Mustache and J.L. Collins. So money, uh, so Pete was talking more about, you know, like the 4% rule and like the simple, simple math behind it and like the mindset. And then J.L. Collins was talking about the investing part of it and how to invest in low cost index funds. When, uh, when Bryce did the math and showed me that we could be retired in three years from that point, three to five years uh, with a million dollars, I thought he was insane. I was like, there's no way, especially given my background growing up in China. I thought, no way, like what you're supposed to do is put your money into a savings account or a house. And then there's no way you can use money to make more money. That's just for privileged people who just tell you the thing like a rich person and that's, it's never going to work. Right. And then when I checked his math, I was like, but this math is correct. Like this math is correct. I can't argue against the math. It's got to be true. And you know, it was just kind of over time. I think we discovered it right around 2012. And then over time I got more and more obsessed with learning about FI and like um, we were reading finance books. We were learning about investing. Um, but I think back then it wasn't really a movement. I think the it, it started being called a movement because mostly of Chusa Fai, who mentioned it in 2017. And because more and more people of different backgrounds, like people with kids have done it, single people, people who are teachers, people who have, you know, different backgrounds, not all just engineers, not all, va all males. Um, and now it's kind of turned into a big community. But when we first discovered it, it was kind of a disparate a uh, handful of bloggers. And we even we weren't quite sure whether this was going to be a real thing. Like when, when I quit my job, like, oh, I'm, I'm firing, I'm done. I was terrified. <laughs> I was thinking that maybe I made a big, big mistake and whether this was going to work out and not just from a financial point of view, but from a, you know, identity point of view. When you've been an engineer for 10 years, it's kind of hard to let go of that identity and just be like, what, what am I now? Right? Because that's what people ask you ask you all the time what is it that you do? And I, I didn't have an, uh, an answer for that question. And one of the things that saved us is the fact that we were traveling. And usually travelers don't ask you what it is that you do. Travelers ask you where you're going and where you're from, right? So that, that kind of gave me the, the, the peace of mind and like the space to really think about what my ne next identity is. And uh, yeah, so I think that the movement has been growing since 2012. And funny thing is we went to a doctor's appointment yesterday and Bryce was, okay, you, you can tell the story. Yeah, yeah. So I was telling him, like, oh, like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I'm an author. Uh, what uh, and, and oh, what do you write? And I told him about kind of the book. And then it turns out that my doctor was like, a, like he was a fan of the fire movement. And he was like, <laughs> In wow. like all the all the Facebook groups about all this kind of stuff, and I was like, oh, gee, you know, where where are these people? He's like, really? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> physician, like, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the so, physician part of the fire community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of that was kind of fun. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah. One of the things I find really motivating about your story is that 
you know, you did it in a relatively short time span. And I like the series you've got on your blog that sort of walks us through uh, the beginning saving period. And then you went through the period where you decided not to buy the house. What, what I find interesting is once people read that, they're motivated. But if you look in a little deeper, you realize that with all the knowledge out there now in the fire community, if you'd started at the beginning investing that money instead of just saving that first 500, you could have even got there yeah. faster. Oh, totally, totally. People don't realize that we made a big financial mistake by jumping out of the market after 2008 when it recovered and then just sitting outside of the market and waiting for to buy a house, right? Like we lost out on at least three years of bull, uh, bull market runway. But the thing is, it doesn't matter when you make mistakes like that because you know eventually you still get there. Like we still got there within nine years, right? So it, it, like, like I say in the book, it, it doesn't, your, your past don't, doesn't define you. And if you make a financial mistake, that's okay. Like where are we now and where, where are we going from here? It doesn't matter what you did in the past. Like everybody has made financial mistakes. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, having the belief in the underlying system and methods that are, you know, tried and tested is really important. And it's the underlying that we all go with in the FI community that we believe that we know this is going to work. And you're such great examples of proving that. Oh, thank you. I think it helps to have support as well, right? I think one of the advantages of people discovering FIRE now is that they, there's this amazing community that you can be part of. Like there's Choose FI Facebook groups. Um, there is the Camp, all over the Camp world. FI. There's Chautauqua that we, we are part of every year. There's all sorts of people that you can talk to now. And you're no longer just a weirdo sitting at your desk going like, oh, I'm I like that nobody find out about this FI thing. Like my boss might fire me and I don't know who to talk to. And my parents all think I'm crazy. So now you actually have somebody to, you know, that gets it. And every time we meet a fire person anywhere in the world, it's always like you, you talk to them, it's four hours has gone by and you're like, how is this happening? I just met you. I don't know anything about you. And they just have that same outlook. Like they may not be similar to you in personality, but it's that open-mindedness, right? To, to kind of question the status quo and to strategically make plans rather than make plans emotionally that I, I'm very attracted to that. We end up having so many in-depth conversations with people who are either interested in FI or RFI. And sometimes it gets really philosophical and it gets like these bigger than life kind of questions of like, if we don't have fear, right? If we don't have the fear of running out of money, if, you know, companies can't control us by forcing us to do jobs that we don't want to do or forcing us to work on stressful projects, politicians can't scare us by thinking that, oh, like telling us this is the immigrant's fault. This is other people's fault. This is outsourcing's fault. And then financial advisors can't take advantage of us by saying, oh, the, there's going to be a stock market crash. You better let me handle your money because you don't know what you're doing. Then we are invincible and we're not we're not afraid anymore. So we can actually make decisions based on you know what makes sense for us. Like we are free to make our own decisions rather than be coerced into um, you know decisions from politicians, from financial advisors, from companies. So it's just these like bigger than life questions that you get to have with other people who are interested in FI because you've kind of gotten out of the matrix and now you can actually think, right? You can yeah, think exactly. for yourself. No, you're, not everyone's just like sitting around like whining about like their house just got, got leaking. It's so <laughs> yeah. boring. Our, I know. Our payments. Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, how right. do you want to make the uh -huh. world a better place? Yeah. How does fire make the world a better place? And I think that it does. It's one of these really big ideas. It's it's the idea that money is is freedom. And the, there's an end point. And that there's it. an end point to the part of your life in which you have to work and work for money. And the fact that that end point may come a lot sooner than you think. You, if you play your cards right, you could be doing it like we retired when we were 31. And we didn't do anything that was extraordinary, like uh, like we talk about in the book. We didn't buy, we didn't start a Snapchat. We didn't buy Amazon when it was ten dollars. Everything that we did, 
everyone else can do. And as a result, if you just kind of take the book and just copy our moves, you'll be a millionaire in nine years too. Mm -hmm. I love how you broke it down into the different types of, I don't remember what you called it, but you you, you describe each type of uh, wealth builder and how you're saying you guys are the optimizers and how <laughs> only the optimizers have a replicable system. You know, yeah. you, you can't luck out like you, all the other methods you might have to luck out in some way, but you're right. I mean, everything you've done can be replicated by just about anyone. Yeah, yeah. You, everyone, everyone listening has the has the uh, access to the exact same ETFs that we used and the exact same brokerage accounts. You can just you, you don't need to you don't even need to do anything like crazy. Just uh, just keep track of where your money is going and learn how to invest. Yeah, and I'm not really that smart. Like I'm not that smart. And you know, growing up in China, like learning the scarcity mindset. Like a lot, when people dump on the scarcity mindset, it's like, oh no, you need to have the abundance mindset. Well, that's not something that you know people who grew up in poverty have control over, right? It's not your fault that you grew up in poverty, but there is a way out. And on top of that, like you don't have to be that smart to become a five. Like I'm not. <laughs> it takes me so long to understand anything. Like when I went to university in, in Waterloo, everybody else would understand something. Like for him, Bryce would understand a concept within 45 minutes, he would complete all the assignments. For me, like three days later, I'm like, I still don't get it. <laughs> like I'm really not that smart. So if I can do it, I, anyone can do this. Um, so I had a question for you guys. It's um, it has to do with a lot, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to criticize uh, JL Collins here a little bit. Sure. But the the overarching theme that we're getting from places like Choose a Fire from JL Collins is that 100% VTSAX is gonna be uh, the most wonderful, simple investment vehicle that you could possibly choose. And he does a very persuasive job of making everybody believe that. And I almost wanted to put all my money into VTSAX as well until I realized I'm Canadian and I can't do that. <laughs> but, <laughs> right? But what I wanted to know is that you guys are 60 40, mm -hmm. and I think that is very off the beaten trail. Correct. And if you could walk us through why you don't have 100% equities, and just to tag on to this question, because a lot of Canadians have thrown all their money into Vigro, and that seems to be the big, sexy, all in one fund that everyone's throwing their money into. And I bet if I ask people, how many of that is equities and how many of that is bonds and what kind of volatility do you think you're in for if we hit a 50% drop? And I, I honestly don't think that they'd be able to give me a solid answer. They'd be like, uh, no, it's it's going to be fine. I just I just won't sell. I promise I won't sell. Christy, you mentioned in your book that you were about to sell. Talk us through that. Yeah, that was in the middle of... Um, you wanna... Yeah, so that, that was very terrifying. So um, when we talk to other people, we tell them that we're probably some of the... Like, I'm specifically one of the most pessimistic people you will ever meet, right? So, I mean, from growing up in China, uh, I've gotten that mindset that bad things can always happen, and I'm not going to say it's going to be okay, right? And the thing is, I always plan for the worst case. And I always have multiple backup plan that also comes from being an engineer. If the worst happens, you know, I have all these different backup plans that will save me, right? So I mean, when we invested in 2008, that was one of the most terrifying experiences ever. Because when you put in $1,000 one day, and the next day, it just completely disappears. It's very, very hard not to just press that sell button and get rid of everything, especially from when you grew up in poverty, and every single penny needs to be treasured. And you think of it as like, this the scarcity mindset makes you think that you're never going to have money again right so but i think that was a really good learning experience because coming out of that once you've survived 2008 you know that the underlying premise that over long term the stock market will recover is true and you know how to overcome your emotions about you know not just like selling 
right at the bottom because that's the worst thing that you could possibly do. But on top of that, we still have we still like to have like at least three backup plans, right? One of the things that people don't think about when they they're you know when they're investing is that you're also like because we're not 100% allocated in equity, we also have bonds. Part of the money that we're getting is interest and dividends from the equities, right? So there's a yield part of your portfolio that you don't have to sell anything during a market downturn that you're just getting that money. And on top of that, we have a cash cushion, which is another thing that some people don't have, right? Because they're like, well, if I have a cash cushion, then I'm just losing money to inflation. What's the point of that? It's like, yeah, but I don't want to lose life to lack of sleep and you know, worrying about selling at the bottom. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. So on top of the yield, we also have three to five years of living expenses that we can withdraw from, which we talk about in the three bucket strategy in our book, uh, in case, you know, shit hits the fan. And then finally, the third lever that we, we could pull is that we are location independent, right? That's actually a very big part of it. Because when you're no longer trapped in a house stuck in a big city, if the market does go down, you can actually move to a less expensive place and you can actually control your uh, living expenses. So if we were to move to Thailand, for example, and we just tested that being in Thailand, you can spend uh, $25,000 a year and live like a queen and have massages every day. And uh, if we lived on $25,000 a year and our yield, the money from the interest and the dividends was $35,000, we're making $10,000 in retirement while sitting on a beach, right? So I would, I, I like to be more on the pessimistic side when it comes to investing because yeah, sure, you can always maximize for, for profit. Like you can maximize and say like, I wanna put every single penny into it and it's gonna grow my portfolio in the future and all this, right? But will you really be able to not hit the sell button when 2008 happens? You will never understand that kind of fear until you've actually lived it. And, uh, the, and, and generally the other people in the AFI community are really optimistic people. Like I keep calling, I keep calling them like cowboys because like people like like Pete and, and, and Jim Collins, yeah, all of them are like 100% equity and this kind of stuff. But that's also comes from the fact that their portfolios are so large that they could literally just live off of the 1.9% dividend yield of the S&P 500 without selling anything if they didn't, if they, if they wanted to. By contrast, we are probably one of the most pessimistic people and, uh, and cautious people in the, in the FI space by, by a long shot. You mentioned the yield shield and how you were talking about your 35,000 uh, disbursements from that. I also, I was trying to find where I read it, but you talked about converting that back a little bit. And so there was a little less volatility. I just read your 2018 um, financials where you do the drawdowns. So I'll ask you about that in a second. But mm-hmm. it, at what point are you intending to sort of go back into more of a growth style so that you're not going to have that yield shield? Because when I look at it, I go, well, that 35K, it doesn't look super risky with the ETFs that you're holding, but it sounds like you want to yep. move them back. So what So what happens when you pivot towards yield? And, um, and when I say pivot towards yields, I mean putting more money in towards bonds, as well as higher yielding assets like preferred shares, REITs, and, and these kinds of things, they pay a higher yield, but long term, their capital gain is not going to be as, 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 as high as the, uh, as, as the index. So, so what you do when you pivot toward yield is you give up long term gains in order to get current income. And how that works is that uh, you don't want to do that long term, because if you do that, you're going to get like over time, you're going to get, lose it on a lot of that compounding. When we retired, uh, we had uh, a million. Uh, right when we retired, I think it was in 2015, the Saudis started pumping oil into uh, in, into the world uh, and, and it was an effort to try to drive Alberta out of business and as well as the shale frackers in the U.S. So what that caused is it caused a, a crash in the t- Toronto Stock Exchange. 
as well. And it, and it, it depressed the S&P 500 as well. So the first year that we were retired, we were actually in, sitting in a situation where we were negative or our portfolio performance was negative. And I was really glad that that yield stuff was coming in then because I was just able to harvest the yield without selling anything. Since then, everything has recovered. And now I'm sitting at about 1.3 million um, as, uh, in terms of total assets. So what that means is that the yield, which is again, just a percentage of portfolio, 33.5% of your of, of 1 million is $35,000, but 3.5% of 1.3 million is more than that. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually, I have more yield than I need. So as a result, I'm going to now that the, um, now I'm in year four of retirement and I'm pulled out of the uh, dangerous period of retirement, which is the first five years, I'm going to now gradually start divesting myself of these higher yielding access, assets and then moving back towards the traditional index portfolio because I don't need the yield anymore. So if I don't need the yield anymore, um, I'm going to, I'm going to pivot back towards um, indexing. And I think, my first step is this year, I think I'm going to get rid of like maybe like half of it and move back into a traditional bonds and indexes. And then after that, I'm going to gradually um, move my um, equity allocation up and up and up until I maybe I hit like 80, 20 in a few years. And that's kind of what my, my long term investing plan is. But we advocate doing this in stages, like not making like dramatic changes as you go so that as you get more comfortable in retirement and your uh, finances are more stable, then you can you know go towards capital over the long term. But we still like to have um, the cash cushion and the ability to be location independent as backup plans. Yeah. And, you know, and remember, the uh, as your portfolio goes up, your yield as a percentage needs go down at a at a certain point. Like once we hit like uh, the the names that you mentioned, uh, Jim and Pete, their needs are like their portfolios is above like is, is I can't exactly it's speak to the exact enough. number, but it's big enough. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. over two, once you get yeah. once you get over once two you get like two million once yeah. you get over two million dollars, you can, like, VT Sachs is is yielding you forty thousand dollars, right? I mean, like that's why they're one hundred percent equity because they literally don't care about volatility because they're just cashing in their dividend checks. Yeah, basically gets to a point where the growth sort of takes over anyway. Yeah, you just you just basically you never have to sell anything unless you really want to, and then you just live off of the dividends. But they've and also just... been outside of sequence of return risk for, for some time, you know, t- over ten years now. So our strategy is more conservative, but it, it's got it's what got us through that rocky bit of the at the beginning of the retirement of our retirement because the dangerous part in any retirement is the uh, first three to five years. If you if you retire and then you immediately hit a market downturn and you're forced to sell stuff at a loss, you don't have as much as many units on, on the eventual rebound. So that's what causes retirements to fail. It's called the sequence of return risk. And that's our strategy to hedge out of sequence of return risk. And it worked out beautifully. So you say that Perhaps eventually you'll move to an 80-20 allocation. Yeah. How does how do you feel about that, Christy? Because I know because of your background, you that scares you. So how yeah, do you feel about shifting it up? <laughs> um, well, you know what? One of the things that helped um, calm my fears is actually living retirement and then seeing what it's like when you actually can move around and be location independent and then actually looking at the numbers. Like I'm, I'm a very tactile kind of person. So whenever I need to test out a strategy, I need to actually look at the numbers and make sure that it works out. So I think over time, I've gotten a lot more comfortable with retirement because in the beginning, the first year will always be the most scary, right? Because you haven't experienced it yet. You're you're trying to grapple with what your new identity is. You're trying to grapple with the numbers. You don't know how much your cost of living is going to be now that you're not working. It should be lower, but who knows? But now that we've actually tested out and it's been consistently $40,000 a year or even lower, I have a lot more faith that I'm not going to 
that it's like, even if we go into 80-20, it's not going to be as scary as my original thought. And also we're moving out of the, as Bryce mentioned, we're moving out of the sequence of return risk, which is uh, for the first five years. So we've been retired for four years now. So you know, after next year, we'll be, we'll be out, out of that first pivotal five years. I also think that one of the things that you do in retirement is that like there's like opportunities that come up, right? For so when you mentioned JL Collins and, and Pete, the retirement police comes running very, very quickly, right? Because they'll be like, Oh my God, Pete is making so much off his blog. It just doesn't count or whatever, right? But then we have to like, first of all, it's like, hello. Oh, look, it's retirement, please. How are you doing? Uh, but, you know, secondly, it's like they're they're choosing to work. They don't have to work, right? Becoming financially independent doesn't mean you have to retire early. It means you can choose to work on stuff that you're passionate about. And if Pete wants to buy a Tesla, he's totally in his right to buy a Tesla. If he wants to do that and he has the money, fine, go ahead, right? Um, so, you know, sometimes that that ends up happening. Like you end up making money in retirement and then some people want to upgrade their lifestyle, they can do that. I'm perfectly happy the way I am. But just seeing that there's all these levers to pull in outside of uh, outside of work, it's really not that scary. My fear level has calmed down significantly compared to the first year that I, I retired. First year was very scary. I think there's so much out there where people are judging, uh, you know, online present people with their sort of post-fire lifestyle, but really the message is how we get to fire, how we get to FI. You know, if you focus on mm-hmm. how all these people got there, that's sort of the motivating story. If you start looking at after the fact, you can get wrapped up mm-hmm. in it going, oh, well, they're making money from this and they're making money from that. Well, yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't really matter. It's how they got there in the first place that's the important message. I like the way on your blog that you've shown that you're keeping separate accounts now. You've got your original retirement account and that now you're keeping it mm-hmm. separate. So it, it's great for us to be able to follow along and see that 4% and, and the way you've got it broken out working. Yeah, because I think that like from my perspective, if I was watching someone else retire and live on the 4% rule, I would want to feel the comfort that they are actually able to live on that portfolio, right? So we want to show people that we are actually living on this portfolio. We're putting all the money aside in the second portfolio. That's only reserved for any kind of like business expenses, nothing related to our day-to-day costs because as we found out that once you start traveling, it's really not that hard to live on $40,000 a year. And I want people to, to discover that. And I, I think it's Ryan that you said you're living on $20,000 a year in Waterloo. Yeah. I mean, that, like there's proof, right? We're not the only people that can, that can do that. It's really not, life is not that expensive um, as people think, right? They're just trapped into thinking, oh, you have to buy a million dollar house. You have to live in an expensive city. You have to do all these things. No, you don't have to do any of these things, especially if you're financially independent. You can choose to live where you want. You can choose to spend money on things um, that you care about and not things that other people are telling you to spend on. Yeah, you can do the geographic arbitrage thing, like uh, just locally, right? I mean, like the States is a great example of a place where everybody's kind of uh, like living in New York or LA, like they're just used to massive mortgages and massive cost of living, but you kind of move anywhere else and it becomes and it becomes way cheaper. I mean, uh, like your, your, your example of just like, you don't have to come, go fly all the way to Thailand. You can just move to Kitchener. Thailand's way better, <laughs> but, Kitchener, <laughs> but Kitchener is an option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, as you guys were talking, I was nodding my head and I was like, yeah, you guys are the experts in expat. And I decided to just move from the GTA to Kitchener. And instead of buying that $700,000 or $800,000 house, which is probably modest, I decided to buy $315,000 worth of property in Kitchener. And that was my little amateur version of geographic arbitrage. There you go. There you go. There you go. And that begets another question now. So say someone's further along than me. And they're really closing in on their fire goal. 
and they're they know that they want to have at least enough money for thirty seven thousand dollars worth of expenses. Would you recommend if they were willing, if like, let's say they wanted to go to Vietnam or Thailand, like they're really interested in the digital nomad style that you two have? Would you recommend to them that they could just pull the trigger on FI and just say, you know what, your expenses are going to be a lot lower in Thailand. Like, why don't you just give it a shot? You know? Uh, okay. Well, I'll, here's the thing: mm-hmm. our our lifestyle is uh, in, even among the digital nomads and even among the fire people is pretty rare. Not everybody lo- likes doing. Like we literally don't have a home base. Like all of our uh, worldly possessions are packed in two backpacks and a saddlebag. Like that's literally it. And I, I get that that's not for everybody. But what I would encourage people to do is to try it out. I mean, mm-hmm. like yep. take like uh, you know I, I gave this as uh, I gave this as advice to somebody. It's the easiest homework ever, which is go vacation more. Right? Go and go 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 to Thailand, go to Vietnam, and and go live there, not like a tourist, but live there like a local, and like rent out an Airbnb or go or find a homestay or find a short term rental, and just literally live in that uh, city and try it out because you don't know whether you're going to enjoy it. Or whether it's doable until you until you actually do it. We have no problems going into Asia because of our because you know we're Chinese, right? So I mean, like uh, Christy speaks Mandarin, and 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 that works like all over Asia, and also the food really really agrees with us in mm-hmm. in Asia. But not everybody, and, and it doesn't even have to be like Thailand. You can go to Mexico, you can go to South America. Like there's a lot of other places that you can choose to go, but you don't know which one is going to fit with your personality until you try it. Right. So you, you got you really gotta uh, you really gotta try just try it. I mean like yeah. take group up your vacation until like you could take a full month off and just move the family to Mexico yeah. and then give it a go. And if you can negotiate a sabbatical, even better, right? Yeah. Yeah. I like the advice a lot because it almost you're almost encouraging someone if someone's at eight hundred grand and they're aiming for that million and they're so burnt out at work mm. and they they they're reading your blog, they're living vicariously through you guys, right? You know, they're almost saying like I'm gonna go to Japan today, you know, and pretend to be Christian Bright kind of thing it's it's almost like you're I I feel like with through your blog you're encouraging people to just take the chance go live somewhere else and maybe you find that you don't even need the million maybe you're just overshooting it and then you're drawing yourself to the risk of one more year syndrome absolutely I think when it comes to your health health needs to be number one priority especially since I saw my coworker almost die at at his desk if you don't have see the thing is people say okay time is more important than money but you know what's more important than time health if you have all the time in the we- in the world, but you don't have your health and your bedridden, that's useless. That time is not valuable anymore. Health is the number one priority, right? Because if you don't have your health, you'll never get it back. And if your health is so bad uh, because of your job and you're just trying to hit that fire number, I think that's not healthy. Like you want to, you know, either like take, find a less stressful job or like take some time off and and just prioritize your health above everything else because it, it's health first, then time, then money. That's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, I love the message. Um, I'm thinking we should start wrapping up now. Guys, do you want to go into the signature questions before we let Christine Bryce go? Sounds good. I'll start since I, I usually start. So my question is, are you team Fi or team fire? Oh, oh, I like that. That is a good question. I, I, I am, I am uh, heavily uh, t- on the team fire side of that thing. Yes. How are you? Um, 
I'm team Phi, actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing. I get that there is. I, I get that there is kind of like they don't. People don't like the RE part of it because it's like, mm-hmm. oh, if it, it means you have to retire or that it makes retire the part of it. Mm-hmm. I love the acronym Fire. Yeah, like f- awesome. from a, from a marketing perspective, mm-hmm. I like you know, there's so many plays on words that you can do that playing with Fire. The fire is spreading. Mm-hmm. Fire, like I, like that's worth using Fire just just for that. Like I, we were talking actually, Taco was like, what should we replace it with? It's like, okay, how about this? Financial independence. Be responsible. Fiber is that better? Do you like fiber? What do you think? No. What do you think of when you think of fiber? Do you want that? Of course not, right? And then they're like, okay, fine. It's true. As an acronym, you can't beat fire. Oh, it's great. Yeah. I, and the no. thing is, none of us know who came up with it. Like Money yeah. Mustache doesn't do you guys know. know who came up with it. Jim doesn't you know. Vicky Robin asks asked yeah. everyone, and everyone threw up their hands and they're like, where did this come? Well, where? financial independence came from uh, your money or your life, but right. not fire. I don't. Yeah. That might be mm-hmm. from I a bet, forum. Or no one knows where. It came I bet from. it's from Reddit. I yeah, it's probably Reddit. from Reddit. Oh, There's come on. Yeah, it has to be a forum. Oh, come yeah. on. Nothing good comes from Reddit. We're <laughs> <laughs> in Reddit. That so, is true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I like uh, my uh, co-host on my other podcast, FI Garage. He termed it, uh, he still uses fire, but he calls it financial independence, refocus energy. I thought that was quite a good one. Oh, okay. Oh, that's like not bad. That. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Mm, cool. All right, well, let's launch into my signature question. You guys are Canadian, and you say that you do miss Canada, so let's hear it. What is your order from Tim Hortons? Bryce, you go first. Double, double. And a, and a maple uh, and a maple donut. Wow, that was really Canadian. I love this question. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> nice. And Christy? I'm going to go with an ice cap. Yeah. Just the classic one? Classic, yeah. Yeah, she's I like the classic. Kind of I'm a classic cat gal. She's classic. They make an Oreo ice cap that easily adds 10 to 15 pounds to my figure every year. <laughs> <laughs> But every time I come back to Canada, or especially when I come back to Toronto, I'm just like, oh, we got to go back to that place that I love. And then I find out they blew it up and turned it into more condos. Oh, and I'm God. like, God yeah. damn it. Oh, yeah. Restaurants are gone. Eventually, eventually, Toronto will just be a giant forest condos. of condos no and nothing else. And, nothing else. and it's like, great. Good job, guys. You ruined it. <laughs> you know what? They're actually like destroying every single parking lot, which is like, yay. And then they're putting up a condo. And oh. everyone's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Another one. That's what we need. Yeah, we need I more think, condos. I think we have some statistics that we have the most like condo per capita like ratio in the world. In the world. And like, yeah, really? It's Hong- pretty crazy. We beat Hong Kong and they're like, yeah, it's Toronto. Because we just went, because Canadians just go nuts over condos. Not for a good reason, but they do it. You know, <laughs> that's what happens. Yeah, I think other municipal governments like to, uh, you know, slow it down a little bit. And Toronto was just like, hell nah, yeah. build it yeah. and they will come. <laughs> yeah, Some idiot will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Money Mechanic, are you ready or what? You betcha. Uh, I've re- reworked my question here. I usually ask a do-it-yourself question, but since that you are extraordinary and not having a house or a vehicle, the question I have is a little more time-sensitive and wondering if, in fact, you may be in the Toronto area during the late summer for uh, book-related things or visiting family. There is a camp mustache happening in southern Ontario, and would there be any chance you might make a surprise visit? Oh. Well, if we told you, it wouldn't be a surprise. I actually didn't know. I actually didn't know about that. But uh, yeah, let's. We could check our schedule and see what and see where it is. I I actually had no idea. Yeah, no. It's. An, I'm. I'm pretty excited to be able to get out there myself uh, from BC. But uh, yeah, there we're having Rob Carrick from the Globe Mail as an opening speaker, and I, I have nothing to do with the organization of it myself. But uh, it's going to be an exciting event for Canadian mustachians. So oh. if you're in the neighborhood, I know everybody yeah. would love to say hi. That's great. We will check our schedule and see if it matches up. Hopefully, it matches up. 
Right on. Uh, fantastic. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Uh, just tell our listeners about just briefly the book, where they can find it, and of course, where they can find you. Sure. Okay. So our book is coming out, uh, actually came out uh, from Penguin. It's called Quit Like a Millionaire. Um, you can find out more information about it um, at www.quitlikeamillionaire.com. And it follows uh, my journey from growing up in uh, rural China on 44 cents a day at one point with my family to becoming a millionaire. And I wrote it for everyone who didn't grow up privileged. So no matter where you are in life, you can plug your um, situation into mine and it will make you a millionaire. Fantastic. And they can find you on your blog, Millennial Revolution, of course. And uh, thank you guys so much for being here. Woo! So much for having us. I love all the Canadian based questions. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Thanks for listening. You can find all our show notes at explorifycanada.ca you like what you're hearing help us grow by sharing the show with friends and family please subscribe and leave us a comment or review on your favorite podcast directory you can also find us at our own blogs figarage.ca canadianfire.ca or eatsleepbreathefy.com our music today was provided by purple planet we'll be back with another episode soon we'll talk then